Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hello, friends, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and tonight it is a ladies' night with just myself and Stephanie Tate. She is an author, a speaker, disability advocate, and a trauma survivor. She has a brand new book out called The View from Rock Bottom, Discovering God's Embrace in Your Pain. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. So Stephanie, we always start out our podcast with a little icebreaker question. When the capitalistic machine we know as Hollywood comes to you and says, we want to make a movie of your life, whom would you like to play you or it could be multiple people or you could play yourself? Yeah, I would not want to play myself. That sounds like a lot of pressure. No, thank you. Um, I don't even want to do a reality show. Like that all just sounds like a nightmare to me. Um, I think it's a toss up for me between Kirsten Dunst Mm. only because... There's a vague, I think there's like a vague familiarity there, look wise. <laughs> or maybe I'm just flattering myself. No, no, no. no. Um, or, or I would say, uh, oh gosh, what is her name? Um, Julia Stiles. Do you remember Julia Stiles? Yes. She like disappeared oh. from acting. I have no idea what happened. She was like the it girl. And then, oh. I don't know, she's gone now. But I adored her. She was my Me favorite. Too. Everything she did was good. Like, not just 10 things I hate about you, Julia Stiles, or Save the Last Dance, Julia Stiles, but her later stuff was fantastic. Now I want to Google her and find out where she is. She She did a version of Othello that was like, it was painful. It was tough. Like, she has some acting chops on her, Mm. so... You know, I kind of lean more in that direction, I guess, then. Yeah, I'd probably pick Julia Stiles. <laughs> awesome. So, as you know, um, our podcast is called Permission to Be. And that comes from wanting to share stories with people all over from all walks of life. Because I truly believe that part of our epidemic of loneliness and anxiety is because of our lack of connection and feeling like nobody else can understand where we're at. Mm. And that is very easy to spiral. Um, And I'm sure you understand that. I personally understand that deal with anxiety myself. So we created this podcast to help form a community and just hear those voices. So we'll jump right into it. What would you say? I mean, I know from you have lots of different points in your story, but what would be some <laughs> key points where that were big turning points of you discovering that um, you have permission to be who you are and you don't need any more exceptions that who you are is enough? Hmm. So you're not wrong. My story is a little complex. I have a lot of sort of different angles that were sort of competing, all trying to tell me that I couldn't be who I was. Um probably goes all the way back to the beginning. Uh, I come out of the foster system. Mm. Uh, My birth mother, I'm not going to get into the whole background of her story, but needless to say, she was not just 
unequipped to care for me. Uh, she was more than just legally neglectful. Mm. I spent a lot of time as a, an infant and toddler alone. Mm. And so I was adopted at a young age into a fantastic adoptive family that I adore and that adores me. And so I think there's a lot of people that think as long as you, you know, there's sort of those ideas of adoption, right? As long as you get that right family yeah. and you're loved and it just sort of erases everything that came before. Mm -hmm. And especially growing up in a very conservative evangelical context I don't know if it was just the time period in the late 80s, early 90s, or if it was like a pushing back against Dr. Phil or what it was. <laughs> I feel like there was this cultural like theme of stop blaming your parents and your childhood for everything. Like you're full grown adults now, like grow up and just take responsibility, right? Like yeah, I don't know yeah. if it was a anti-pop psychology or what it was, but there was definitely this running current of... Stop making excuses. Like, mm. it doesn't matter what happened to you when you were three or four or eight or 12. Like, these things, you're an adult now. Get over it. You're in charge of your own decisions mm. now. Um, which is, of course, not how that works. Not at all. <laughs> and so you combine that with also being in an evangelical culture that was incredibly I guess the buzzword is complementarian, meaning that I did not see women leading mm. because women were not allowed to lead. Mm. And so when you have a personality like mine where you're clearly very shy and introverted and quiet, no, like if you can't tell, <laughs> I'm the most extroverted extrovert. I am the most 7-7 seven, seven, uh, imaginable for the Enneagram nerds. <laughs> it, there's, there's not a context for that in that sort of culture. Mm. Women should be quiet and gentle and meek and supportive and you shouldn't like the spotlight too much and you shouldn't have too many opinions and you definitely shouldn't be sharing those opinions all the time. Mm. Mm -mm. So I had sort of these dual channels that were both telling me that, A, I wasn't enough, mm. that I wasn't worthy or lovable the way I was. Mm. And a lot of that is that trauma root yeah. from childhood. Yep. And then that was just sort of confirmed by a culture that said, and you're never going to be enough. And you're certainly not going to get a man to love you someday if you're this garish, outspoken, over-the-top personality mm. and you can't learn to shut up. So I think I spent most of my childhood and my teen years feeling like I was just sort of a broken person that if I could just learn how to be quieter and get people to like me more, that maybe I would be happy. Maybe I wouldn't feel lonely. Mm. I have, all these connections would just happen for me. But I kept sort of seeing the key as I just had to change who I was first. And then all those doors were going to open and everything was going to be great mm. in my life, which again, is not how that works. No, not at all. No. I... I don't think I started being comfortable being myself even a little bit. Probably, if I'm being brutally honest, it's probably only been in the last five years or so that I've started to figure out what it looks like to be me. Yeah. And I would be lying if I said that I'm fully comfortable with mm. who that is mm. right now. I'm still very much a work in progress. I have a specialist in trauma therapy. I have a wonderfully supportive husband and a great church community now that is all about women mm -hmm. leading, but it doesn't, 
it doesn't flip like a switch, right? No. Like that programming is still in there. There are still times I have to identify those lies in my head and say, wait a minute, where where's this voice coming from? Where is this anxiety coming from? Why do I think that, you know, it's things like I can be in a room full of people having a fantastic time. Everything's going great. We're all having a blast. It's a party. And as soon as I go to the bathroom or somewhere where it's quiet and that quiet hits yeah. me and I realize how much I've talked, yeah. all of a sudden that voice comes in first thing that says, you know, they don't actually like you, right? Uh, they're just tolerating you. Uh, they're being nice. I bet they're all in there talking about how they wish you would just shut up. Uh, and I have to like audibly tell myself sometimes, where where is that coming from? Like that's – who said that? Where, nobody said that, Stephanie. Like where is this – where does this voice stem from? And I have to call out those lies even now today and remind myself that it is a lie, that that's just coming from that place of anxiety, that's just coming from that trauma root in my brain, and that it's not in any way stemmed in reality. But at least I'm working on that now. At least I'm aware yeah. that they're lies. Like that for me is how I'm figuring out permission to be myself is step one is just knowing that they're lies mm -hmm. and being able to call them out. I'm not sure I'll ever get to a place where those lies go away completely. Yeah. 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 No, I, oh my goodness. Well, and it's the whole thing of, you said you feel like it's only been in the last five years. So yeah. you have, I'm not going to guess your age, but you have <laughs> a decade or two before. It's between 30 and 40. <laughs> we'll put it there. It's between 30 and 40. It's not either of those numbers. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. So those five years, all of that muscle memory in your brain for the first 20 years of your life is not going to be changed in five years. And, no. you know, and I will say... I'm 42. I've done seven years of counseling. Seven years mm. is not going to fix, and counseling is not about fixing. Seven years is not going to help me process through the other 35. It takes ongoing right. work. It's an ongoing process. And I can relate as far as I actually did have someone tell me to my face that I was too mm. much and that no man would ever want me with an attitude like mm. I had. And I was told that at 21 and that has never, and it's a relative and it has never left me. Um, and so, and it's just ingrained in us. And what is so interesting is I always thought I was an introvert my whole life. No, hmm. I learned to shut up because yeah. that's what a good submissive Southern Baptist girl does. Um, and so. Did you ever hear the story growing up? Um, I think it was pretty commonly taught, especially if you went to a Christian school or anything like that, of um, the missionary Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was the little girl that they would tell us the story about how she prayed every night that God would give her blue eyes because she just wanted yeah. blue eyes so bad. And of course, you know, the moral there was the vanity of that. But the, the story ends with the fact that she had her brown eyes and God didn't give her miracle blue eyes. But Amy Carmichael went on to uh, work in India with mm -hmm. women specifically who were in essentially a form of sex trafficking mm -hmm. at the time. They were um, workers in these temples 
in a form of, of a sexual kind of worship. Mm-hmm. They were available almost for purchase. And so she would help rescue these women out of these temples. And the only way she was able to do that is she literally dyed her skin so that she could try to blend in mm. and go in and appear as one of these Indian women to help shuttle them out. And so they tell you this story growing up in evangelical culture all about how, see, God knew and she needed to keep her brown eyes. But it's funny because I feel like in many ways, a lot of us were praying for blue eyes in in one way or another, right? Mm -hmm. Like I constantly prayed that God would make me quieter, that he would make me more popular or more likable, that somehow he would change my personality. And the hardest part is that at its core, I really felt like, God, you have to do this so I can be useful for your kingdom Mm, because I can't be useful as I am right now. So trust me, God, like you have to fix me so that I can be a good Christian, so I can do stuff for you. And the irony is I connect so much to the Amy Carmichael story now as an adult because if it wasn't for the exact qualities that I thought made me so unlikable and so unusable in ministry, I wouldn't have a platform or a ministry Mm. now. My entire ministry came out of rampant oversharing on the internet, (laughs) having too many opinions Mm. and being way too comfortable sharing them. And my my ability, if you will, to put my mess out there in all of its glory and say, can somebody connect with this? Because I don't want you to feel alone. So here's where I'm at. And if that resonates with you, come meet me over here and we'll chat. Those are the exact qualities that I was desperately praying that he would take away. And in in a way, that's my brown eyes story. Mm -hmm. That's the, no, I needed you to be that way. I made you that way on purpose Mm. because that is the role I have for you to fill. Not the quiet, meek, submissive wife that you wanted to be, you. That's why you have this ministry now. So just go be you because that's where I needed you. And that is something I so desperately want women to see. I want you all to see in yourselves is that there is nothing about you that's a mistake. Like that is, Mm -hmm. we don't need to be exactly what you just said, Stephanie. We don't need to be more meek and mild, especially if that's not the personality, if we're squelching who we are inside of ourselves, that does nobody any good. In fact, what it did for Mm -hmm. me is it just developed into, well, not the only thing, but it was a big part in developing my generalized anxiety. (laughs) Um, Because Mm -hmm. all I did was just suppress who I was, and I never thought I was going to be worthy over and over Mm. and over again. Um, And it is such the opposite of who I believe that the divine has created each of us to be completely the opposite. But yet we we're looking for a mold and we need to stop looking for a mold to fit. We need to not look for a mold to fit. One of the things that's helped me um, in a faith context is, so one of my sons is autistic Mm -hmm. and I told a story in my book and I've told this a few times uh, in other settings where Aiden was very young, like preschool, kindergarten age. Eh, he's probably kindergarten, first grade. And he one night prayed an absolutely heartbreaking prayer where he asked God to take away his autism. Oh. And we were a bit floored because we had worked really hard to celebrate neurodiversity and to try and never present autism as as a negative yeah, in our family. Yeah. 
But you can't protect them from the way the world looks at them forever. And it was very clear that those messages had started to seep in. And this heartbreaking prayer comes out of this little boy who desperately just wants God to make him like everybody Mm -hmm. else. And I had to think fast because, you know, this is breaking my heart. And I want to fix it. Like I want to do something. And so in the moment, you have to remember he was very little. So this is going to be cheesy as all get out. (laughs) But I made up a kid's story as quick as I could. Social stories work really well for kids with autism. And so that was a context that it worked for us. So I started to talk about, you know, uh, and again, pardon the pun, but I was like, you know, blue puzzle pieces, because that's sort of what people thought of when they thought of autism. I said, you know, I can imagine if we were all pieces in a puzzle, there'd be lots of blue puzzle pieces at the box. They'd all look very similar, Mm. just blue puzzle pieces left and right. And if you were a brown puzzle piece with funny squigglies and weird angles, I could see how you might feel a little left out. You might want to be one of those blue puzzle pieces. But of course, again, cheese fest, because this is a little Mm -hmm. child. I told him this story in which when we start to put the pieces together, all those blue puzzle pieces, they're just the sky, right? They're 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 doing their little part. They're the background. They're the sky. And that brown puzzle piece ends up being cheesy, the face of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Again, he was little. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But what I wanted to explain to him somehow was this idea that it's not just that God's okay with us all being different. Right. It's not enough to just accept that he made us all different. If we really believe that we're made in the image of the divine, that we carry God's Mm -hmm. image, I see that to mean that our God is so big and so multifaceted, it just wouldn't be possible for one of us to accurately reflect Mm -hmm. that. We need men. We need women. We need quiet people. We need loud people. We need opinionated folks. And yes, we need people with autism Mm -hmm. to accurately reflect all of those pieces of his character. And it's helped me, not just Aiden, it's helped me to have to have told him that story because... Now I'm so patently aware of the responsibility in that, right? Yeah. When I when I feel like, well, sure, God may accept me as I am, but I still would be a li- like to be a little more likable. It's good for me to be reminded, no, I have a responsibility to be who he yes. made me to yes. be because I'm carrying that piece, that reflection. And if I start being somebody else, there is some facet of God's mm-hmm. character that people aren't going to see. Mm-hmm. They're going to miss out on it. In, in, in a way, I'm giving them an inaccurate idea of who God is because I deleted some part of him that no one will get to mm-hmm. see because I didn't play the role I was given. Mm-hmm. And that has lit a fire under my yeah. butt in terms of figuring out how to wrestle with this self-doubt and this self-hatred and learn how to be the person he made mm. me to be and not the one I think would be more mm. likable. Mm. That is awesome and amazing and really hard at the same time if you come from an evangelical upbringing, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it, it's all about God and it's not about me. That's all I hmm. heard. Over and over and over and over again. And when you hear that from literally the womb till 30, it, no matter how much another, you know, buzzword, you've deconstructed your fundamental beliefs and you've reconstructed them. That, you know, I know for me, that's the loop that plays in my mind. And Mm. unfortunately, sometimes that my response to that loop is not to say, you know, I acknowledge that and I put that aside. Instead, it's I get really pissed off about that. <laughs> yeah. 
I would love to know your thoughts because that it's really hard to accept yourself that God that Christianese, that language in our brains that's there, how do you combat that? I mean, because, and at the same time, have a desire mm-hmm. to continue to be a part of the church. It's complicated, mm-hmm. to put it lightly. But a lot of this for me has come in unraveling. I told my husband one time, I think part of what makes deconstruction paired with reconstruction so painful is. I feel like you're doing very like scalpel precision work, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's going in and cutting out some of the stuff and feeling like, okay, I've gotten rid of that baggage. I figured out what doesn't Mm -hmm. work for me anymore and I've let it go. And then something new will come up. Mm. And just when you feel like you've healed, you got to go back in like a burn victim, right? You go peel off another layer and figure out what to get. It'll almost be easier to just take a chainsaw and amputate a limb and be done Mm -hmm. with it and just say, I'm chalking it all. But trying to hold that tension of, I don't want to throw the baby out with backwater here. I want to cut out what doesn't work and salvage what's still sacred and what I still Mm -hmm. connect with. It's painful. And some of what you just said really resonated with me a lot in that I had to figure out how to peel apart the layers of it's all about God, it's not about me, from what I felt like was the harmful underlying message in that of you don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I hear now things like it's all about God, it's all about God, you know, or, you know, people saying not my will, only yep. yours, mm-hmm. it, I can feel that resistance build up that says, you know, I've been hurt. And, mm-hmm. and these were some of the tools that helped yeah. me be yeah. hurt. But when I peel apart the layers, I'm able to say, okay, is it the idea of the sacred or the divine that's really bothering me here? Or what part of this message, like, let's break it down into its components and figure out Mm -hmm. what I have a problem Mm -hmm. with. And for me, it was that underlying message of you don't matter. Mm. And I've come to a place where I can say, I'm comfortable now with the idea of being an image bearer, of walking around representing the image of God and having that, because if anything, that absolutely rebuts that lie that I don't matter. I I have to matter. Like, what a sacred thing to be an image bearer, to be walking around as a literal reflection of the God of the universe. And the more I did sort of study on these ideas of suffering and grief and lament for my book, the more I kept being clued back into this idea that we have a God that deeply cares, That, that this underlying lie of you don't matter, it's all just secondary, like... You should just not care about your feelings. You should not care if things are hurting you. You should not care about your suffering. You should just put on a happy face because it's all for Jesus and you don't matter. That lie doesn't stand up to the light of day. When you look at the verses like that I sort of tore apart in my book and asked, where is God in our suffering and our grief? And our, I don't see a picture of a God who would ever agree with the sentiment that we don't matter. Mm-hmm. Not, not yeah. even a little bit. Absolutely not. So I get it. Like it's it's painful to keep going back to those layers and peel again and peel again and reopen those wounds to slice out more dead flesh. But it's the only way that I can manage to hold on to those core values that I'm not ready to let go of yet. How have you not let go of them? Because 
I mean, <sighs> we you've only talked just a little bit on the show tonight about what you've been through and just from reading your blog and social media and interacting with you there a little bit, I know that that is a minuscule piece of what has happened in your lifetime thus far. So mm. how have you not given up? <laughs> like there's part of me that uh, I just. Yeah, no, it's a valid, valid question. And it is one I have gotten many, many times. And What's interesting is if you grew up in evangelical contexts, you probably heard the verse a lot growing up about how we should always have an answer for everyone. And that was always presented in this really weird context. Like it was very much God's not dead movies, right? right? Like some atheist professor was going to come out and try to debate you and you were going to have to prove to the Uh. class that God was real. So you really needed to memorize a lot of verses and prepare for this because it was definitely (laughs) going to happen. And you should definitely display your Bible a lot in airplanes and you should pray as publicly as possible in fast food restaurants because I guarantee someone's going to come up and debate you, Uh, which has definitely never happened even once in my life. So I was a little surprised at how little that happened. (laughs) I was equally surprised how little strangers came up and offered me free drugs. This was also (laughs) presented as something I needed to be very prepared for. Hasn't happened yet. A little confused on that. But what was interesting was I stumbled on that same verse when I was writing my book. And I reread it, and it was coming in a context of a letter that I was looking at for a totally different reason. And I was surprised to find the verse in there. And I thought, what does this have to do with what I'm talking about over here with suffering and grief and lament? And it turns out that that verse has nothing to do with debating atheist college professors. It's completely presented in the context of this longer letter about suffering specifically. Mm. And it wasn't. Oh, like if you really dig in and you get nerdy like me and you peel apart the Greek and you do that, yep. all that Christian-y yep. stuff, it's, it wasn't even a word that suggested like you need to go out there proactively and defend anything at all. It was very responsive. And the context is so narrow thin in the verse. He specifically is saying people are going to come to you because of your hope and because of the way that you manage suffering mm. specifically. Mm specifically in that context of how do you deal with the burdens of suffering? And people are going to see how well you suffer and they're going to say, how are you doing that? And that was the context in which he said, so just be ready to explain because it wasn't like, hey, you need a good defense to prove it to them. It was, let me just tell you, if you can be faithful in the way that you suffer well, man, people are going to see that. So just know that that's going to come. People are going to ask. That's sort of the promise less than the threat that that verse was always taught to us as. And so it's funny because I read that verse. I wrote about that verse. I have a book on shelves. I guess that makes me very legitimate (laughs) now. And yet I get this question all the time and I have not done what the verse said because I don't have a good, like concise answer of how I managed to do it. There are so many times I just want to offer the cop out and be like, well, there by the grace of God go I. Like I I don't know. I think I think some of it boils down to I finally got to a place where I stopped trying to split myself into two people mm-hmm. when it came to me in my life and me with God. Yeah. 
I stopped trying to clean myself up Mm -hmm. before I came to God. I stopped trying to gloss over what was really going on in my life, in my prayers and be like, it's okay though. Like, um, but if you have time, could you maybe heal me? But like, it's okay if you don't. I stopped Mm -hmm. doing that dance and finally had it out in very like borderline heretical ways on my bathroom floor and told God exactly what I thought of him (laughs) and what I was feeling and was surprised to discover that he was still there, Mm. that I didn't get kicked out of the family, (laughs) that I, that he didn't say, well, then I'm done with you, that I wasn't gone from everything because I was honest Mm that I had made these expectations, I think I viewed God very much like conservative context had taught me to view a husband. That that I was supposed to carry my own crap Mm. and not burden him with that because he had bigger fish to fry. And so my job was to hold my own crap together and maybe get some girlfriends if Uh I really needed support. But you definitely don't bother your husband when he gets home with your emotional garbage, right? Like that was the message we were sold. And I think I did that to God. Like I felt like, okay, I have to, sure, I can tell him I'm having a hard time, but I have to clean it up a little bit first, right? Like I have to get it to at least, you know, clean up your mascara and put on Mm -hmm. your your Mm so-so face. And you might tell your husband I'm having a hard time with something, but it's the very toned down version that's been cleaned up Mm. first. So it's not too burdensome for him. And I think I thought I had to do that with God. And I don't know, I feel like maybe when I, once I turned that corner and said, I'm not going to do this anymore, I, it's going to just, either this is going to be it and this will break us and I will be done with faith or it won't, but I'm going to be truthful and it's going to be all out Mm. there in the open, sink or swim, this is it. Mm. And I don't know, I think anytime I start to think the church is too hard and there are times I... Now I'm going to get all emotional. I just went last night to my very first like women's ministries type of event in probably the better part of three plus Mm. years. And uh, it was hard. I don't often walk into contexts like that anymore. Mm. I have some very negative history with being hurt by some churches in the past. And as much as I love mine, it's not my church that I'm worried about. It's just that when you have trauma issues, your body doesn't always know that it's your church you just walked into. Yeah. Yeah. So in case anybody from my church hears this, I wasn't worried about Mm -hmm. them. I just knew that, and I was right, that once I walked in the door, my body would immediately think I was in one of two other churches. And it was hard to walk in the door. But part of what lets me do that is knowing that... If it doesn't work out, it's okay for me to get in my car and say, you know what, God, I'm not there. Mm, I'm not there. And I don't think I'm going to go back next month. I think think I'm out. And that I'm not going to be the problem child. He's not going to kick me out. He's not going to say, then we're done Mm, and I can't use you anymore. Like, that's the end of your ministry and I'm going to take away your platform and punish you now. Like, that's not who he is. I think that gives me permission to try the scary things yeah. and just see how it goes. Yeah. I feel like what I'm hearing you say is that how you suffer well is to suffer honestly. Mm-hmm. 
is suffering well and letting Christ showing up in your life, Jesus showing up in Hmm. each of our lives, or those who have experienced um, suffering in many different ways, is by just being honest. And it's okay if it sounds like you're complaining, because you're not. But people have a perception, and that perception usually is a reflection of their own concern about what people are going to think about them if they were to act in the same manner. And that's, Christ needs you to show up desperately just being you in all your suffering. I wrote a little bit in the book about this idea of the Garden of Gethsemane Mm. story and working through that text because, again, if you grew up in a conservative context, you know that that story exists, but you probably never heard a whole sermon on Mm -hmm. it or anything. It was more like a scene Mm -hmm. change, right? Like the Last Supper is really important (laughs) and the crucifixion is really important. And they bring out some rocks and flowers in between so that they have a chance to get the set backstage set up for the crucifixion. Like it's just sort of in between. Or you heard like, you heard the quickie version, right? Like he goes in, he kneels down. He's like, not my will, but yours be done. And then off (laughs) we go. But when you read the story, and it's in three of the four Gospels, which, again, nerd me has to say that means something. The yeah. three of the four writers carved out space for this little story, especially considering the context, yeah. right? This yeah. is kind of the most important part of the Gospel story. <laughs> and they're like, let's take a whole page to talk about this garden story for a minute. That means mm-hmm. something. So that immediately piques my interest. But I started reading the different accounts and sort of piecing them together to get a clear timeline of what we're looking at. This is not a quick story. We're talking about those disciples had enough time to fall asleep, not just once, but repeatedly, mm-hmm. and him come back to wake them up again and get to try and call them into this. And so when you piece it all together, you get this story of, of a Jesus who's not they're like stoically, it's okay, God, your will be done. You get a story of a Jesus who's freaking the freak out, who's sobbing, who's on the ground, who's freaking out and pleading and begging, if there's any way to get me out of this, can we just do that? I don't want to do this. Uh, this this is scary. And I'm allowed to say that. I'm allowed to say this is scary. And so I'm telling you, I don't want to do that. And what's really interesting to me is when you read the one account that talks about the sweating blood detail, the context is kind of mind-blowing in that there's Jesus pleading for any way out of this. And yes, he does say, Ultimately, not my will, but yours be done. But it's all based in this context of, but I don't Mm want to do this, Mm -hmm. though. And in that context, God sends an angel to comfort him, is what the text Mm -hmm. says, and to strengthen Mm -hmm. him up. And reading that, coming from an evangelical background, you would expect that if an angel of the Lord comes to him to strengthen him, that he's going to get up from that ground. He's going to run over to those disciples and he's going to say, it's okay, guys. God's got this. Just wait and see. Like, you got to trust me on this. This is Jesus. He knows he's rising Mm -hmm. in three days. He knows what the plan is. And yet that's not what happens. The angel of the Lord comes and strengthens him and he gets more desperate Mm -hmm. and more anxious in that Mm -hmm. strengthening. It doesn't strengthen him to get up out of his pain. It strengthens him to go deeper Mm -hmm. into it. 
And that's when he starts sweating blood. Mm. And it's the same Jesus who only hours later is on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And reading that story and that line, I can't explain how eye-opening and freeing it was to see if the sinless Savior of the world can talk to God that way and still be the sinless Savior of the world, why do we put this expectation on ourselves that we're supposed to hold it together when we come to him? That we're not supposed to have fears that we express to God, that we're not supposed to have doubts or get anxious or say, I don't want to do it this way, God. This is not cool. I don't like this tragedy that's happening. I don't like this suffering I'm going through. And I'm going to tell you how I feel about that. Because if Jesus did it, why do we think that we're not allowed to? And more than that, if the whole point of being a Christian is to be an imitating Christ, is to be a Christ follower, shouldn't we be embracing this example of bringing our baggage in front of him with complete honesty. And that that means there will be times that we say, this hurts. And there may be times it comes out as, why have you forsaken me? Which in my story came out as, where the hell are you? Where you're supposed to be here. That was my, why have you forsaken Mm -hmm. me moment is the hell, where are you? I don't even think you're here anymore. You just abandoned me. What the hell? And there was nothing, and this is going to sound sacrilegious for many, but there was nothing sinful in that. There was nothing inappropriate in that. There was nothing wrong with telling God with complete brutal honesty where I was. And I think why I'm able to keep my faith despite everything that I've walked through is that I put all that out on the table and he was still there and we were still fine. And it didn't end our relationship. He didn't kick me out. He didn't say, and now I'm sending punishment on you because that was heresy. If anything, I felt him more nearly, I connected with him more deeply, and I found space to just be with him in my pain instead of looking for all the ways to Mm. fix it. I think we have to stop. I think if we had, let me rephrase that. I think we have to recognize that especially if we've grown up in the church, our starting point seems to be this massive unworthiness. And I don't think Mm. that's where we started at all. And I think when we started unworthiness, it feels like a long climb out of that hole. And Mm. we can't start there. We were created by the divine with intent and purpose and meaning. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to forget that. That doesn't mean we're not going to have anxiety. But at the same time, we have to start letting go of this fact that we're all these broken people and that we're just trying to make it to heaven and that this life on earth is only here so we can save each other and get to heaven. Because then we miss, I really truly believe that we miss out so much on who God is. Yes. And if we're always in that forward, futuristic Let me just get to the end because this life is so awful and it's so hard, but I can make it through because I'm going to be in heaven. Then I think we've missed the point. Hmm. I really do. I think the divine did not create us to be longing for something. 
I don't know. I, I don't know what heaven's going to look like. I don't know what that means for each person listening. I don't know how to define it. But I do know that there are some pretty amazing things that the divine does with us right now. And I know that we need each other. And if we're so focused on heaven, we're going to miss out on how to be in community. I think too often we see heaven as sort of an erasure of everything that happens Mm -hmm. here. Like this is just sort of a waiting room and none of this counts. We're all just kind of here getting sorted into two piles. And then, then our real life starts when we get to heaven. I've actually heard it taught that way, that that's our real life and that this doesn't matter. And um, I actually just wrote a devotional the other day about the fact that when Jesus appears after his resurrection to his disciples, he still has his wounds Mm -hmm. from the crucifixion. And how profound that is for me to consider that he defeated death itself, right? This is somebody who could have come back in full glory, fully healed, everything back to exactly the way it was before, as if none of it had happened and it was all right again. And yet, and I want to be graphic for a minute to make the point that we hear that as his scars, but when you read the story of him appearing to the disciples and Thomas, we're not talking about scars. He literally says, stick your hand in my side, stick your finger in my hand. Like These are not like slightly discolored marks of flesh that are just there to prove that his story really happened because that's how we hear oh, it yeah. taught, right? Oh, like he just definitely. has little marks, but they're really just there because, you know, it shows that he really was – that's not what happened. He comes into that room bearing the gaping wounds of the same body that was crucified and the same body that went into the ground walks back into that room in the same form that it left. No change to his physical body. And as a chronically ill and disabled person, I can't tell you what that means to me to know, first of all, that the glory of the divine can be fully contained in a body that this world would think is less than whole. That there was nothing wrong with being in that wounded body and still being the glorious savior who had just conquered every curse in Mm -hmm. death. But more than that, it reminds me that eternity isn't about erasing everything that came before. Because if it was, he wouldn't have come back mm-hmm. with those wounds. We wouldn't see visions in Revelation of, you know, a Jesus who's up there on the throne still mm-hmm. showing off those wounds. We wouldn't have a Savior that had any sort of markings to show what had mm-hmm. happened on this time in earth because all of this would just be erased away. And yes, I do believe that when heaven said, you know, when the Bible says that there will be no more tears and that all of that grief will be wiped away, I believe that. But what I don't think that means is that we're just going to forget mm-hmm. all of this, that all of this was pointless, mm-hmm. that it's all meaningless and it'll all just be erased. We'll forget any of it happened and we'll just go sing mm-hmm. songs to Jesus forever. That's not what I see. I, I see the idea that somehow we're still going to mm-hmm. remember this. We'll still have a Christ that bears those wounds, but that somehow they will become something Mm. glorious, that somehow we will have the vision to see things the way God sees them, that all of it will make sense and that we'll have restoration in that sense and not in the I've gone and I've fixed every disabled person's body and I've erased every bad thing that ever happened to you and it was all meaningless. 
let's party now. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. see that. This time matters. These wounds matter. These relationships matter. And so I need to do something with this time. I need to be wholly mm-hmm. present and embodied right now and not someday when Jesus comes back and fixes mm-hmm. it all. Because if he didn't fix those wounds, I think a lot of us are going to be really disappointed if we think he's just going to come wipe all this away too. So one of the questions that um, we ask on our episodes, and I've been amazed at the variety and welcomed the variety of answers. Um, Currently, what does the word salvation mean to you? Oh boy, right? right? <laughs> you just go right for it. Yeah. Okay. So this is the double check to see if I really am just a complete heretic now. <laughs> no, heretics kidding. are welcome. Actually, I prefer heretic because oh. the true definition. <laughs> this is really funny because this is going to sound completely made yeah. up, but it's ironic that you would ask this question because our six-year-old mm-hmm. has started speaking in a way that it's very clear he's operating under the assumption that he is a Christian. We're like, okay. Now, we have a pretty strong family stance that we don't push small children into repeat after any prayers. There's a lot of consent issues there that bother me. So it's like, no, when they are ready to ask, they can ask, but we're not going to introduce that to them. So, you know, we've never really explained anything to him about our beliefs on that. And so he's walking around talking about being a Christian. I thought, okay, I just want to kind of make sure I know what you mean by that. So we start asking him all the church questions, right? Like the trick questions to weed out those kids that don't get it. The like, well, what if someone's read the whole Bible? Does that make them a Christian? What if someone goes to church every week? Does that make them a Christian? And he knows all the right stuff. And we're like, oh, okay. But it hits me all of a sudden. Okay. But I don't believe the way I used to growing up. I don't believe that there's some magic prayer that if you say the right Mm -hmm. words, that makes you a Christian. And yet, I also really would love to give him some kind of experience that allows him to look back and say, I made a choice. I had agency. I had consent. This is not just something my parents put on me. Mm -hmm. I didn't pick it up by osmosis. This isn't just their faith. I made a choice. So we tried to lovingly like suggest like, but have you ever, you know, told God this or have you ever prayed and, you know, specifically Mm -hmm. told him you want to be a Christian? And my little six-year-old theologian decides to test the boundaries of my definition (laughs) of salvation. And he goes, well, you know, God knows my heart and God knows everything I think. In fact, God knew everything I was going to think before I was born, even before he made the world. So I don't have to say it out loud because he already knows. And I'm sitting there agape like, well, you're not right. (laughs) And by technically by the new definitions I operate under and by this theology I'm so proud of deconstructing, I should just accept that answer because, yeah. And yet everything in me coming from the background Mm -hmm. I come from is like, but you have to say the words or it doesn't count. And I don't want to say that to him. And I don't want to scare him into some fire insurance prayer. So I'm having to have these really hard, like, come to Jesus moments of, 
okay, well then what, what is salvation? Mm. How do I define what it means to be a Christian? Because this little six-year-old is going to push every boundary with me of what does that take? And so for now, I feel like he believes that God is Mm -hmm. real. He believes that Jesus was a real flesh and blood person Mm -hmm. that existed and that he really did come and die and that he really did physically rise. And he believes that, you know, that he wants to follow Jesus and he believes that he wants to go to heaven someday and that those Mm -hmm. are his beliefs. And for now, I'm just sort of accepting that I think that's good enough. I don't think he has to say a string of words or say it out loud or get baptized or if this is what being a person of faith looks like to him, I'm going to have to sit back and accept that and kind of go forward knowing that I don't have a God that's going to look down on a six-year-old, you know, I'm not definitely not where I was when I was a good conservative Baptist. I'm not over here worried. Like if we die in a car crash tomorrow, he's never prayed the prayer. Like we don't have that God. I'm pretty comfortable with that. But man, I don't know. Every time I think I know what I believe, Jack is the (laughs) one that like, he comes with a question that I'm like, I, 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 I don't, I don't know what you're six. Your brain shouldn't even work this way yet. Go play iPad or something like please how can I make you dumber because I can't deal with this all the time I feel like that is oh this kid that's normal parenting I have a five and a seven year old I feel like I don't he's that kid like he this sounds like a joke because it's always a joke but he literally asked us the other day can God make something so big that it's bigger than him because then he wouldn't and like we're not no we're not doing this like not doing mind games with Jesus. Like, oh, you're six. Like right now, the only thing you should be hearing at church is that God made you and that you're special and that God loves you and that you need to love everybody else. That's it. That's the extent of six-year-old theology. Stop asking these questions. He wants to know um, if God always stays the same, but space is getting bigger every day, then wouldn't that mean eventually space would get bigger than God? Wow, smart boy. (laughs) Your turn. Like, I will just give you all my theology texts over here. Here's my strong concordance. Figure it out. Like, So you can have him on next week, and he will tell you all about what it means to be saved. There we go. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me tonight and having this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me a platform to ramble incessantly (laughs) and be myself, because that's who I am. And I will immediately, full confession, log off from this and replay it in my head and go, oh my gosh, I rambled so much. I talked so much. But yet again, I think my job's going to be not to somehow figure out how to make those lies stop Mm. coming, but to figure out how to filter them appropriately, Mm. to recognize and identify them and call them out and say, nope, that's a lie. And I'm just going to move on and not let that take root and not obsess over it because I can't control the fact that those are going to yeah. come up. They will. That's, yes. that's trauma brain. My brain was permanently rewired in ways that I have got to let go of the expectation I can fix that. 
But what I can control is what I do with that lie when it hits. Yes. So I will log off from this and immediately go, wow, I talk too much. But I'm going to follow that up with a reminder that you knew what you were getting into when oh, you asked I did. me to be on this show. <laughs> and I wanted, I wanted to get into it. I was thrilled to talk with you this evening. Y'all need to go and find Stephanie's book on Amazon. Again, that book is The View from Rock Bottom, Discovering God's Embrace in Our Pain. And I also believe that in the near future, there's an audiobook coming, possibly, maybe. They're working on it. Um, I sadly do not get to read it myself. Bad oh. boo hiss. They did not even let me audition. No uh, way. I wouldn't have even rambled this fast or anything. Like, I can actually do my theater voice, but... That was not like when I give, I just have to be honest. When I preach somewhere, I don't preach like this. Like, this is definitely me answering off the cuff uh, when I'm tired and in my very hot sound booth right now. When I preach, I, I can put on my good normal person voice. But um, yeah, there's supposed to be an audiobook coming out by the end of the year. And hopefully by January, I am actually releasing um, on my own a workbook sort of study guide oh. to go through the book. Oh, kind that's of, and awesome. Really journal through some thoughts that help help you make it less about my story of meeting God in pain and more being able to sort of reflectively apply it back to what that looks like for you. Mm. I feel like your work is so groundbreaking, especially in the more progressive circles. If people are willing to explore what it really means like to question God and Mm. to face your trauma in the midst of it, the work you've created is such an amazing tool and gift. Thank you for pushing through because I know, I don't know. I have listened and read that it has taken a toll. Yeah. That's. And so yeah. <laughs> to say, to say it lightly. Yeah. And we're grateful. I just think there need to be more spaces mm-hmm. for this, for that messy mm-hmm. middle mm-hmm. of, on the one hand, I don't recognize the faith of my youth and I don't feel like I fit there anymore. Mm. And yet, on the other hand, I tested the waters of sort of chucking it all and walking away and I didn't feel like I fit there either. Yeah. And so I, I think there are more and more of us who are looking for that messy middle mm-hmm. and saying, what does it look like to go through with scalpel-like precision and say, I want to cut the toxic baggage, but I'm not willing to amputate an entire limb here just to accomplish that. So I appreciate you saying that. It yeah. is hard work and it doesn't always get received very well, especially by seminary attending gentlemen. But that's a story for another day. Anyone want to sign up to read my inbox for me and just delete all of the messages oh, from seminary, my- guys? I'm hiring. so. <laughs> but I appreciate the willingness that you had to bring me on and let me sort of create another space for this conversation and to share it with people who might not know where they fit either. So it's always space at my table. (laughs) So how can people reach you? Uh, My website is www.stephanietatewrites.com and Tate is T-A-I-T. That's my Canadian husband's fault. Don't look at me. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter. That's where my feistier opinions are all kept. Uh, That is Steph Tate Writes. 
And you can follow me on Facebook. Just look for Stephanie Tate. I do not have one of those fancy author pages, but I have thousands of friends. So quick, get in before Facebook limits me and cuts (laughs) me off. It's coming. (laughs) So. Oh, well, thank you again, Stephanie. And I can't express enough gratitude. We need your voice. We do. I'm working on believing that. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. hearing it. And I'm going to try to replay that in my brain Mm -hmm. when the lies hit. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley. And thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.